Hello and welcome to EndNotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books and publications on politics, policy, and more, all written by faculty at Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is John Eikenberry. John is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. He also co-directs Princeton's Center for International Security Studies. John has long studied international relations and is the author of eight books. Today, we're going to be diving into his latest one, A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism, and the Crisis Global Order. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Rose. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. You know, I think uh, for many of our listeners and myself included, some of the terminology in the book is familiar, but maybe perhaps not part of common vernacular. So before we get into some questions, I thought maybe you could give us sort of a definition of over an overview of what liberal internationalism is, uh, just so that we're all on the same page before we dive into the book. Rose, this is a a great question to start with. Liberal internationalism can be seen as a a tradition of thinking and acting in international relations. Uh, It's an old, venerable tradition that reaches back to the late 18th, early 19th century with the rise of liberal democracy. So it's very much tied to the modern era, the rise of liberal states, uh, the age of democratic revolutions, and the ideas that these uh, uh, new liberal democratic states brought to international relations, and then over the next 200 years, uh, used them, reworked them uh, as they struggled uh, through the 19th and 20th century and into uh, the current period. So you can think of it as a, as a, as a school of thought, a, a tradition, uh, a, an academic set of theories, really, about how the world works, and also a kind of ideology of how the world should work or how you would like to organize the world. So it has all those different uh, components, a lot a lot like other uh, great traditions of international relations, realism and Marxism. And it has its convictions, its it hunches about uh, uh, how to organize the world. Uh, and it's evolved, as my book tries to show, over two centuries. So it's had uh, a great, great uh, variety of different aspects and experiments and revisions and crises and reinventions. Yeah, it seems like the point of it from from my reading is that it's sort of to build this open world order that's oriented more towards progressive ideas. And you mentioned that you went through some 200 years in the book. I don't want you to get into all the details, but you can, can you kind of explain what it looked like over that time? Yeah, um, the... One of the famous phrases that is seen to encapsulate liberal internationalism was Woodrow Wilson's phrase, which I use, uh, adapt to the title of the book, A World Safe for Democracy, uh, which has often been uh, uh, understood to mean spreading democracy, uh, pushing our ideas on other states and peoples. And to some extent, there is that aspect of the history, but I try to suggest that liberal internationalism and this phrase a world safe for democracy really means across the 19th and 20th century something a little bit more focused on creating a kind of environment or ecosystem for liberal democracies to function. So think we think of it not so much as spreading democracy as creating an international setting, an ecosystem in which liberal democracies can do their thing, uh, secure their 
interests and values and struggle with all the different com- competing values within the liberal tradition, liberty and equality, individualism and community, sovereignty and inter- interdependence. So there's an extraordinary kind of richness of often competing uh, uh, values inside of liberal democracies. And in some sense, this is the international dimension of that, trying to create a, a world safe for, for liberal democracy. In the 19th century, you had a kind of scattered set of experiments with internationalism, uh, lots of different strands of internationalism, free trade, the legal movement for building international law, the peace movement, parliamentary assemblies, hundreds and hundreds of, of meetings across borders by politicians and political activists trying to organize and, and create a, a kind of tapestry for these rising liberal democracies and those on the periphery of this emerging system to, to work together in various ways. In the 20th century, it was much more rocky. You had World War I and World War II as great destructive wars that put uh, before these countries, starting with Britain in, in, in the 19th century and early 20th century, in the United States through the 20th century, how would it organize the world system? And so the book really tries to look at the 19th century rise of these different internationalisms and the 20th century effort to uh, really with World War I and its aftermath, uh, pursue a, a more programmatic vision of building an open, rule-based, progressively oriented system with lots of ups and downs along the way and entering into the current moment, which I think many people would say uh, the crisis of liberal internationalism is now upon us. Yeah, that might be actually a good time for me to ask what motivated you to write this book and why now? I'm guessing it, it's your in your statement that you just made, but can you uh, expand upon that? Yeah, this began with an invitation to give a series of lectures at the University of Virginia, and it was uh, lectures to be on the current crisis. What what's wrong with the multilateral open system? Uh, it, it seems to be coming apart. Uh, this was the the month after the election of of President Trump, and there was a great debate about whether liberalism, liberal democracy, and liberal internationalism. And that led me to to focus on the current crisis, but as I did so, to really decide that I needed to look backwards, that understand the the, the prospects for, for liberal internationalism, one needed to go back and take the long road. And so I decided to step back, take more time, and write a bigger book about 200 years of, of ups and downs and trials and tribulations. And doing so with the conviction that we've been here before, uh, that that this isn't the first crisis, that obviously in the 30s and 40s, you had uh, an even more existential crisis of liberal democracy, starting with the, the Great Depression and the rise of uh, fascism and totalitarianism and total war, the Holocaust, the kind of devastation of liberal democratic hopes and aspirations. And indeed, in looking back, a, a, a book by a, a Columbia scholar, Ira Katznelson, Desolation and Enlightenment, uh, a book about how liberals in the post-World War II period tried to put the pieces back together, how they dealt with their crisis of, of liberal democracy. And it made it clear to me that there is a, a rich history of struggling to cope with the 
the great forces that surround liberal democracies and push them forward or push them up or push them down. And uh, uh, so the book then uh, looks at these different eras and the way in which activists, diplomats, scholars, figures who are the kind of agents of change and politics uh, work through these great forces, the rise and fall of empire, the evolution of liberal democracy itself, growing uh, economic interdependence between these countries uh, and the larger global systems, cascades of, of globalization, how all these, what I call the forces of modernity, uh, were front and center as liberal internationalists in each of these eras tried to figure out how can we make the world safe for our our system, our way of life. Yeah, you know, y- you write about this in the book, and I we see it happening today, that countries are moving in this more populist direction, or at least it feels that way. But your book, you've now looked at a history. So <laughs> how can we use that history and bring it to the present moment? How can we feel optimistic? Or should we feel scared? Yeah, I think I try to be optimistic. I, I think the way in which I, I look at this is in some ways we're always in a, a process of building and, and rebuilding political order, whether you're a liberal or some other stripe of politics. And the way I, I think about the current crisis is that, like in earlier eras, there was a kind of unraveling of the coalition that put together the most recent incarnation of liberal internationalism, the post-World War II system. And that created a, a circumstance then for innovation, the post-World War II order, and now we're kind of at a moment like that again. Hmm. And in some ways, what I argue is that, in, that the current sort of unraveling, if you will, of the liberal international order was in some sense a, a kind of result of, of its success, that after the end of the Cold War, you saw this celebration of liberal democracy and a certain kind of international vision that seemed to spread outward, all countries and all places seeming to want to join this system in the 1990s and, and onward. And in some sense, that social mobilization of liberal democracy and the, the project of building a, a world around liberal democracies kind of outran or overran its its foundations. Uh, and the domestic underpinnings of that liberal post-war order began to, to erode. Uh, we lost the connections, I think, in the, in the 90s and, and in this, this century, the last two decades, in tying openness, rule-based order, these kind of hallmarks of liberal internationalism to domestic systems that provide economic security and well-being for people, the kind of erosion of the social contract, the the, the social safety net, uh, the connections that were built after World War II that tied domestic coalitions for growth and for social advancement to uh, to a kind of collaborative international system where working with others was was something that brought brought you dividends so to speak at home that that you were working with others to develop capacities to manage interdependence and protect the ability of the government to make good on its promises to its people full employment and social uh, security and that kind of bundle of 
commitments that we made to each other, or we made to other countries, our governments made to us, and so forth and so on. All that kind of bundling of agreements and bargains and institutions came came apart really over the last uh, decade or two, and and so. Looking into the future, you asked the question, "How optimistic am I?" I, I think it. There's a lot of, of worry that we have uh, that we can certainly find. Uh, we I worry. I think there's a lot to worry about, but there, there we've been here before, and there is a usable past. That in some sense, that's what the book is trying to provide—a kind of usable past of of how we rebuild order after crises, how we knit together coalitions and and rethink our our old ways and and that's in some sense how I, I end the book with a with a set of prescriptions and and a, a kind of vision of how the next liberal world order might look like hmm. well I want to get into that vision but before I do you brought up an interesting point because I've been thinking about things like social security which at the time that it was rolled out people were actually very against it and now it's sort of one of the more beloved programs, if you will, of the United States. and But yet there are people that, I mean, today you see people not wanting to buy into that. And you were kind of talking about that, that lack of social organization. So why do you think that crumbled in the past decade or two? I think there's a, there's a real challenge to understand this. Uh, um, for me, there was a kind of, I guess you'd say the 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 early years of this century were unkind to the liberal international vision. I mean, the the, the Iraq War and mm. 2008 financial crisis, in many ways, discredited internationalist elites on both the center right and center left in their kind of commitments to this this project of an open rule based order and the connections between domestic well-being and an international system of the sort that we lived through in the post-war system got lost and, and that con- those connections broke down. I think people, everyday people saw the international order as more of a kind of platform for capitalists and bankers to do deals, a kind of neoliberal platform, and less a kind of collaborative club of liberal democracies and fellow travelers working together to to make sure that we can lift our societies up and aren't forced to compete in a race to the bottom that destroys our own uh, domestic prospects. So this kind of divergence, if you will, between the growing inequality and, and stagnation of wages and life opportunities inside of our advanced industrial societies and internationalism, uh, which again became much more of a narrow band of, of elites, all of that kind of delegitimated, uh, uh, undermined uh, the ability of political leaders in the U.S. and Europe, across the trilateral world in East Asia, to, to, to hold up a kind of vision of international order that would be oriented towards problem solving uh, and towards moving and orienting our societies for 21st century uh, problems. Well, then pivoting a bit to um, sort of how you end the book, what are some of the prescriptions or the the vision that you, what's the vision that you lay out? And what are some of the more viable ways, I guess, to protect liberal democracy going forward? Yeah, um, th- 
I think what the message, uh, you might call it the academic or scholarly message, is that liberal order cannot be and was never destined to be a global order in its fullness, that after the Cold War, there was a sense of there, there's nothing else out there as an organizing concept for the world. And so it, it spread, and many countries, including China and to some extent Russia, wanted to join in, the, to join, for example, the WTO. But along the way, the, in expanding that order, you lost the kind of bargains and governance institutions within the, the, the smaller club of democracies that provided a kind of bulwark for sustaining shared social purposes. And what I mean by that is that the liberal democracies during the, the heyday of liberal internationalism after World War II really worked together as a kind of club, a kind of group grouping that had a kind of logic of conditionality. So to be in the club was to share certain values and interests and also certain responsibilities and obligations to work with these other states. And in doing so, you were able to create a, a kind of higher order political system that sustained your values of, again, of what I'll call embedded liberal values of purity and uh, a kind of problem solving that liberal democracies saw as the center center uh, of their, their of their their prospects. That club unraveled, as I've been suggesting, and in doing so, the the liberal order became more like a, as I say at the end of the book, a kind of shopping mall where countries could walk in and pick and choose what they wanted to participate in, join the WTO, but maybe not other institutions. Or so there was a kind of ad hocness and fragmentary diffusion, really, of, of the order. And so it lost its coherence. It lost the sense of conditionality. And what I try to argue at the end is that, in some sense, for the reconstruction of the kind of social purposes that we associate with the liberal order, uh, the club character may need to be reconstructed, that, that the liberal democracies are going to need to work together in various ways if they want to sustain rules and institutions that will support the kinds of commitments they want to make to each other and to their own people. Then the obvious question is, well, what about those countries on the outside? What about China? What about Russia? What about those that aren't really liberal democratic? My vision of the future, the, the, what, what I take from my 200-year reconstruction of the liberal international project is that one has to kind of work two different at two different levels. One is the global level, which is based on Westphalian principles of sovereign equality and any country that's uh, a nation state is part of the system and its ability to participate is tied to its ability to make commitments and follow through with them. Whereas at the same time, I think there needs to be and there will be um, in pressures and incentives to to rebuild a kind of uh, loose grouping, uh, an alignment of liberal democracies that want to work together to drive the agenda for reforming multilateral governance, uh, upholding rules and regulations, uh, the, the minutiae of international relations that bias those rules and institutions in a liberal democratic direction. This is where I, I pause to think about how China fits in. And to some extent, 
China doesn't fit in. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily want to integrate into and uphold uh, the, the full comprehensive vi- vision and system of liberal order. And so in some sense, it is a, it is a rival and that, that rivalry can be handled in different ways. And that's probably a subject for a different uh, podcast. Yeah. But in the short term, I'll just say that liberal democracies have reason to work together in part to make sure that they, they have a kind of gravitas as a, as a kind of critical mass of countries that share certain interests and values so that as that critical mass, that, that club of democracies, they can be most effective in uh, negotiating with and competing with China over the broader terms of the international system. It doesn't have to be a cold war, but a kind of constructive competition for what our rules and institutions will look like. So there is a kind of good news quality to the rise of a rival superpower that may want a different kind of international order. And in that that it kind of concentrates the mind. It, it creates incentives for uh, cooperation. That's really where I leave the book with the idea that, as in the past, liberal democracies have in some sense found their calling internationally when they are confronted with existential threats and with rivals that are offering a different approach to uh, coping with the forces of modernity. That's an interesting way to look at that. You know, two, I mean, 200 years is a long time to look at. And I'm just sort of curious from the standpoint of writing a book like this, uh, we like to always ask our authors, you know, what that process was sort of like. So what was the hardest section or chapter for you to write about and why? It was, it was truly an enjoyable book to, to write, I should say, at the outset. And, and when I was done, you're never really done. You kind of end the book. Uh, you quit, so to speak. You don't finish it. Uh, you could always do more. Uh, and I didn't, in some sense, want to, to end it. Um, I could have spent another year. I enjoyed uh, getting into the interstices of, of the liberal international story. And I, I guess where I struggled the most, where I, I had to kind of truly dig dig in to, to my uh, intellectual capacities and uh, perseverance in the face of, of so much I need to learn and know uh, was the interwar period. Mm. When, when the, the, internationalists who came out of World War I with this glowing vision of a, of a new world system, uh, when that failed, uh, you had these internationalists who were fellow travelers of, of Wilson and the British uh, internationalists uh, who helped put together the League of Nations. That generation of thinkers, I followed them into the 30s and 40s. I wanted to see how did they cope with confronting a world that did not fit with their expectations. They, they, their, their, their assumptions about the way the world worked uh, were dashed and things didn't turn out as they had hoped. And how did they update their theories? How did they rethink their convictions? And that was the toughest uh, road uh, that I was on with this book because I had to really track key individuals across time to see 
how their ideas evolved, which means reading iterations of their work across the decades and try to draw inferences about their assumptions and theories. So that that was a particularly challenging task for the the middle part of the book. That sounds really interesting, though. I can only imagine what you were picking up at that, you know, what you were reading. So why why do you think, I mean, it's a, it's a scholar, more scholarly book, I suppose, but why do you think scholars, but even non-scholars, should pick it up and give it a read? I think um, we're at a moment in the study of international politics, and whether we are scholars or citizens, where we have to kind of go back to first principles, we're, we're we're at a point where things are, are, are falling apart in some sense, that order is breaking down. And so uh, it behooves us to, to look back and look into our intellectual uh, resources for understanding how orders are rebuilt on the other side of, this, of these crises. And so we're at a point now where first order questions are being asked. What, are the, what is the future of liberal democracy? What what are the sources of international order? When we hit bottom, how do we go up from there? Uh, and what kind of uh, usable past do we have to help inform us? Uh, history, as I tell my students, echoing, I guess, Mark Twain, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And there are things we can learn from the past. And we, we, we and it's, it's actually comforting to know that we've been on this road before. This is a a public moment for thinking about what kind of world do we want to live in, and we're we're in, you know on the on the edge of a of a presidential election, probably the the most consequential in in our lifetime. Stakes are high. The we're we're at a moment where the biggest questions we can ask about international relations are are, are, are as I said on the table. So in that spirit, I hope this book is a kind of big picture big thing book that that provides lessons and framing concepts for the inevitable project of rebuilding uh, the international system. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up today, unless there's anything else you wanted to add before we close out here. Rose, this has been great. Uh, thank you so much. Great questions. And I, I uh, am so happy to be able to talk about the book with you. Likewise, yeah, I, I learned a lot. This is not an area that I knew a ton about, but I feel like you conceptualized this very well. So thank you. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This show is recorded, edited, and produced by me, Rose Huber. We also want to thank our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the School of Public and International Affairs.